Welcome to the Improvising Life Podcast, where we explore how life can be more livable. This is Lloyd Crawford, your host. Today's guest episode, so much fun to record, is with one of my dearest, dearest friends, Carrie, and also one of Mercury's aunties. And so, Carrie is a death worker and is really serving through this beautiful liminal space of how can there be so much richness and humanizing that we add to life when we're able to acknowledge that death is part of that life cycle. And so without further ado, here is our episode. Welcome, welcome, Carrie McCann. Is it okay to say your full name? Do I need to edit that? Yes. Okay. <laughs> you can use my full name. <laughs> and we're not editing that. I asked if we can edit out because this is the Improvising Life podcast. And you know this by now, I don't edit. So. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to introduce Carrie as just one of the most genuine, not just friends, but this type of energy or being that like, I tell her she has a goodometer, right? She just like is so great at both feeling into what feels good, but also holding and honoring boundaries when things don't feel good. And I've learned so much from that. So I apparently wanted to introduce you as a really healthy friend to have and you model community and relationships really well. And I just wanted to talk about your gut, I guess. But how would you like to introduce yourself to someone beyond just having a gut? Um, I, how would I like to introduce myself? My gut is so loud (laughs) and I have finally like started to really listen to it and have been, especially this last year, making that a very intentional practice. I think as I um, learn and relearn, you know, self-trust and practice boundaries and love and community and, and all of those things. So thank you for honoring my gut. It is like my guiding force. And, you know, I was like joking with my friend the other day. I was like, well, I can help you with your workshop, but as long as it's after my workshop, because I know my gut's going to be so loud, I'll probably have diarrhea before. So I can't help you. <laughs> I go first. Uh, so yes, my gut is, is very loud and Um, I think like thinking about other parts of myself that have um, helped me arrive to today, this moment here with you, um, that really have been gut led, I would say, because a lot of my journey, my path has made no sense to me. (laughs) You know, like 20 year old Carrie would have never seen where 34 year old Carrie you know, five-year-old Carrie may have seen it, but (laughs) 20-year-old Carrie wouldn't. Um, So I am a daughter, a granddaughter, a wife, I'm a dog mom, I'm a friend. Um, I am a death worker and I am a community herbalist and a yoga instructor. And I like to um, explore all the places where those things intersect. And um, I have been recently leaning into my superpowers and remembering my superpowers of supporting caregivers. Um, So thinking about supporting caregivers with herbs and holistic practices um, as they support either people who are dying or people who are just in need of care right now. Um, Yeah, that's a little bit about Thank you so much. And on the the note of your gut, before we perhaps transition, who knows? Um, Maybe we'll talk about it the whole time. (laughs) Whole time. For me, I see parallel because the gut is really where you're breaking things down and what is death, but a breakdown of sort of lived expectation, you know, like of what we think life is and then this transition. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I at least see that parallel a lot of, of, you know, your really strong gut energy um, and then in the work that you do. But I was thinking of also one of the beautiful things that you've offered me and in, in our relationship um, over the past several years is help with like a, a sense making, but a sense making that comes from a very embodied place and not my head. I can mm-hmm. sense make anything with other people. That's what I'm here to do with my mental energy. But you bring this really beautiful embodied sense making. And one of the ways that you offered that 
was by sharing and allowing me to use the phrase of emerge poos, right? Mm. You know, and it, that was like one of our first more embodied bonding moments of like, oh, you randomly shit yourself uncontrollably too? Dude, Wonderful. Yeah. Um, you know, and so that really was so helpful for me to stop sort of um, pathologizing or blaming my body for being a body. But understanding mm-hmm. that in the moments where I was having my emerge poos was because of having a lot of mental or energy shifts, right? So going from somewhere hot to somewhere really cold suddenly, or like mm-hmm. being in really long drives where suddenly I was within my own energy and my body was like, hey, we've been overwhelmed for a while. Oh, also you're like drinking way too much caffeine, trying to stay awake while driving. We don't like that. You know, so you were, you were, mm-hmm. you helped me start sense making with my relationship with my body. And I see that parallel of how my relationship with my body is that shifts my ability to be in relationship with others that feel more intentional and accountable also shifting. Mm. Yeah. So I'm curious if you've been, um, and I just love how you had said five-year-old Carrie may see where you are now, but 20-year-old didn't. I'm wondering if five-year-old Carrie had a certain connection or relationship with either your gut or the idea of death or any of the practices that you have now, um, if there's just something you remember being really into or enjoying as a child, understanding that I'd like to say, you know, once life started lifing, you know, we're told to not be ourselves. I just want to hold that space that there might be a lot of conflicting feelings then of, of knowing that there was that time where little Carrie wasn't able to merge with big Carrie, but I'm just curious on whether you see any parallels. Ooh, good question. Um, I don't know. Let me think about that. I actually don't remember a lot from being five. Like I don't have a very strong memory. I, it's just not my. Yeah, I don't remember brain. shit from childhood. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think you know, I think there are reasons for that, but that's like a whole other conversation. Um, but thinking about like child carry. Um. The thing that's coming to me right now is dreaming. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I'm going to go with that. I'm like, where is this coming from? But, you know, everything is coming from somewhere. Um, I have like always had, always, <laughs> always had a lot of emphasis um, added. Dream life. My dream life has been very active and. I had a lot of nightmares as a kid. I've had some like really um, like spiritual experiences in my dream world. And also that like not dreaming, but not awake state. Um, And I think when I was younger, I didn't know what to do with that. Mm -hmm. And then you know, I didn't really either have someone to talk to about it or talk to anyone about it. Um, but then as I got older, I started to be like, this is a thing. <laughs> this, this is a thing here. Like sometimes I'll dream someone is pregnant and then a week later they're like, hey, I'm pregnant. Or, you know, sometimes I'm like, and now in my, in this state, I'm like, trying to do some discernment around like, what is this my brain processing things? Is this intuition? Um, Like, does it have to be either or? Yeah. Does it have to be either or? I think for, oh, you know, when I started to come back around to being like, oh, dreams are a thing. I was like, it's all intuition. And now I'm like, you know, I have some dreams. I'm like, well, clearly I'm processing that situation, (laughs) you know, or like, um, yeah. So I think that there's, I, I enjoy like exploring and finding the discernment there now. Mm. Um, but, uh, when I first started getting into, maybe this is where this is connected. When I first started getting into kind of formally, um, learning death work, um, cause you know, I've also, we all have also been doing that our whole lives in one way or another. Um, but Scorpio sun over here. So, <laughs> been a part of my experience um one of the gosh I, I can't remember the name of it or really even I feel a little out of touch with the practices right now but um there's a whole 
thing, theory, practice, um, philosophy around the ways dreaming and death are connected. Uh, and like, I'm doing a bad job explaining this. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, it's been a little while since I read about it. Um, but that was one of the first like things that I started exploring when I was like, what is, what is death work? What is death? What, what is this? Um, and there are some, um, some resources out there, you know, that we can all be discerning about, but I believe I may be getting this wrong, but I, I believe that, um, in Tibetan Buddhism is where a lot of those practices come from. Yes, I, um, my friend Kelly had referred to me a book that's the Tibetan Book of Dreams. Mm -hmm. um, might not be the correct title, but those words are in the title. I will confirm and put in show notes. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that's the same as the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I don't believe it is, but I'm saying that there is a, a large Tibetan philosophy on dreaming. Yeah. Um, and so, and with you sharing that, that actually like connected to curiosity I had about if, you know, if um, pretending this podcast has a focus largely about how life can be more livable, I'm curious about how, um, what your initial thoughts are on how our current Western society's like aversion to talking about death impacts our ability to live. Um, mm. And then maybe even do you have like your own definition? Um, and I know it's just so on the spot. <laughs> Nothing was pre-planned here um, <laughs> about like, what does it mean for you to be living? And then, mm. and, you know, like, and what do you, uh, your personal thoughts on what does it mean to be dying? And if any of that mm. is too much, you can just talk about casseroles or something. <laughs> you know, I've been trying to touch in with my ancestors and cook more casseroles. So we could go like there. we've had yes we've had a casserole chat. I, it, so when that came out I was like I see how that slipped in there <laughs> also Carrie feeds me often so I just appreciate all of the ways that you care <laughs> um I'm forgetting what your question was yeah oh, I definition, do of living. So, definition of living and death and how in our current culture our aversion to processing or talking about death can impact our ability to live mm. Yes. Um, we are all dying as we speak. Hi. As Mercury wakes up and looks at her Auntie Carrie. Hey, Mercury. Oh. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We got smiles here today. Um, you know, from the moment we're born, hey, Mercury, we, we are dying. Um, and we don't know when our time is or how that will be. Um, and we're also living, right? We, we are holding those two truths at the same time. Um, but every day I live, I'm a little bit closer to my death. And when I am able to embrace that, I think it's a beautiful opportunity to think about how I am living, like how I'm using these precious days that, you know, may we all have the privilege to grow old, but we don't for many reasons, you know, from medical for systemic, uh, you know, injustices, like there's so many reasons. Um, but when I think about, like, if you ask yourself the question, like, how would I change my life if I had a terminal diagnosis, I think about that and I'm like, if I only have three months to live, what am I going to do differently? And, you know, let's hold reality here. Like I can't do all those things differently because I don't know that <laughs> I only have three months to live. So I can't just be like, at this, I'm not working anymore. I live in a capitalist society. We have a mortgage and utilities and all the things. Um, so there's the reality to hold with that. But are there things you would do differently? Are there relationships that you want to repair? Are there, you know, practices that you want to come back to? Are there, <laughs> just Mercury's face is so sweet right now. <laughs> she, uh, I'm pretty sure she woke up because she knows your voice. She was like, mm, yeah. familiar. Hi. Like, hi. What are you and doing? she wants to hear your wisdoms. <laughs> we have a lifetime for that. Mercury. I hope, you know. <laughs> 
Oh, <laughs> so engaged. Um, yeah. So, you know, like what, what would I want to do different and how would I want to do different and how can I bring that into my everyday life? And, you know, thinking about society and kind of like what has happened to us culturally, specifically in the West, because not everywhere is like this. And I can really only speak to the United States because that's my experience. Um, but we have really like taken death out of home and out of the community. Um, similar to birth, death used to happen at home. There's a lot of parallels with the, the um, I don't want to call it a birthing industry, but it is now. Uh, and the death industry. And um, a lot of our practices that we have now like came from war and came from the rise in the medical industrial complex that we have now. And we've adjusted and death is now not a thing that happens in community, not a thing that happens in home. So we don't see it anymore, right? Like when someone dies, they're immediately taken away. Um, and one of the things that we talk about in death care is death is not, in most cases, right? Sometimes it is, but in most cases, death is not an emergency. Like if someone dies at home, that's not, it's not an emergency, right? So we can take a moment and like sit with that and sit with what's there before we make that next call that we do have to make, right? Um, but we don't have to make it as soon as it happens. Um, but we've really been separated from, from our, our dead loved ones and our people who are dying. Um, and it's created, you know, I think death is a thing that a lot of people fear anyways, cause we don't know, right. It's unknown. We have lots of theories about what happens after we die, but we don't know for certain. Um, and then when the, the act of dying and our dead loved ones when we're no longer seeing them. <laughs> I'm just smiling at Mercury the whole time I'm talking. <laughs> I'm just grateful that she's going to be comfortable talking about the realities of death because this is, yeah. you know, she's having these experiences. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. I do have one question or like curiosity from what you're sharing. Yeah. Um, about the urgency part, right? You said it, in most cases, it's not an emergency. And I think that really mm -hmm. speaks to whiteness and how pervasive whiteness is in um, sort of really co-opting societal practices at large, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, oftentimes with whiteness, there's so much discomfort on any potential conflict. And, I, and mm -hmm. I'm wondering um, if you have any thoughts, or maybe I'll just share it as my own thought <laughs> um, mm -hmm. about how um, the inability to see death as something natural or communal or something relational um, increases the, the our sort of perception of it as a conflict. And since whiteness mm -hmm. wants to avoid conflict, we want to avoid death, right? And mm -hmm. so that urgency energy comes in because it's like, oh, well, now the, the body is something to deal with, right? It's a task. Mm -hmm. I need to just mm -hmm. get rid of it, essentially, mm -hmm. like one thing off my to-do list. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm feeling that as a curiosity of how, how would I even explore what would it feel like what would feel like it's okay to do with someone who's just passed, like hold mm -hmm. their hand still, or, mm -hmm. you know, like close their eye, like those types of things that you might see in a movie. But I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm asking myself that question now of what's my comfortability level of when I trust myself to mm -hmm. know what to do and how can these conversations facilitate that discovery? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's it right there. <laughs> and, you know, just to name two, like, I think the death we're talking about is like someone dying at home, you know, either from a medical event or age, um, but honoring that there are all, all kinds of ways that we die. And in some of those ways, that is an emergency, like more of a, a traumatic type death uh, that, that is obviously handled differently and needs to be handled differently. Um, so just, you know, holding, holding that in the conversation. Um, but yeah, in general, yeah, I mean, we can, we can see the ways white supremacy has totally changed our death care system. Even that we have a, a death care industry. 
right? A funeral industry, even that this exists, is the product of white supremacy. So I would say that urgency that's that's in there and that like I think, and I don't know if this is specifically white supremacy, but that like um like not wanting to look at itness. Uh and I part of that I think is fear and not knowing what to do and not knowing that you can sit and hold your loved one's hand after they die. Um that and that we have like part of our messaging now is that um death is a medical event um but death is a a thing a natural thing that happens um and especially when you know when we when we know that death is near right if someone has a terminal diagnosis or they're on hospice um we really get to take some time and part of the education that a lot of death workers do is that death is not an emergency <laughs> that you can take your time that 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 you um yeah that there are all kinds of things that you could do it's legal in every state to have a home funeral you know and most most people don't know that and there are you know there are things that you have to do um but we don't know a lot about death and i think part of that is our fear and the culture that we've created around it we don't want to talk about it so we're not planning for it we're not um we're not sure what to do when someone dies uh, how to support someone as they're dying it's there's a lot of unknown and we're like we need professionals to do this and for some parts you do absolutely but for some parts you don't you don't need a professional to uh, like offer you space to be present with your love. No, thank you. I have two curiosities. Let's see if I remember them both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One, I just was thinking, hello there, about how <laughs> the way capitalism functions is like even looking at a will, that might be the closest thing someone gets to thinking about death, but it's just like, what do I do with my assets or resources, right? Mm-hmm. It's not really necessarily about like, what do I want to experience or what matters necessarily mm-hmm. in the terms of, of a communal mattering. Mm-hmm. Um, And then the other thought that I'm having is, you know, how, if we, if we do know that there's a terminality, if that's a word of of life coming up, do you have a terminal diagnosis or even as you're aging and, you know, presuming, as you said earlier, every day you're alive is also a a day closer to your death. Um, Oftentimes, um, at least I hear people talking about, and this also happens with with pets as well, animals or anything that you're in relationship with that um, you start to consider how's their quality of life, you know, and that being a case with pets of like, when do you let them pass? And so Mm -hmm. I'm just curious too about if if we're living as I call adulting on autopilot, right? We're just doing all the things we have to do to function in a society with systems that are really inequitable and problematic and pervasive. Um, do we actually know what quality of life looks like or feels like? Do we have those conversations with self? Do we have enough awareness in the case of, of um, animals we care for in our relationship with to like know um, what their cues are? How would they share? You know, and so I'm just curious about that part too, about um, our challenges as a society of navigating death as a reality and one that doesn't have to be so cryptic I guess that's kind of punny I don't know you know like Mm -hmm. the irony of that um on whether yeah whether quality of life is something that again becomes a to-do list like a checkoff point and not something Mm -hmm. that actually is in um that the person or being sort of being evaluated, right, has a lot of input on. So I'm curious on in your work so far, um, have you been able to facilitate that type of conversation with someone who might actually be receiving the care as someone who might be navigating um, perhaps this liminal space of I'm unwell, so it might actually be my time to transition soon? Mm-hmm. <sighs> yes and no. Um, so I'm still newer in my death work. So naming that, um, and um, I had a lot of thoughts while you were talking. So I'm trying to like pick up on pick up on where they <laughs> where where they were. Um, I was as you were speaking, I was thinking about um, one of the things that 
as deaf workers, we do with people when we're doing deaf planning with someone. And that's, to be clear, you can do deaf planning whether or not you know you are actively dying. Like you can do it at any time. We highly recommend it. Please come to us now. <laughs> and that way you can start to think about and have some of these conversations. But one of the first things that we, I would talk about with people and that many of us talk about with people is like, what are your values? What's important to you? Um, like, yes. So just starting there, starting from a values-based place um, and then kind of working after working towards that, like what does quality of life actually mean to you? Um, and, you know, how can we support that for you for as long as possible? Um, and thinking about, as you were talking, I was also thinking about, and this is like, um, this is a cultural thing, so no, no shade. And also to point this out um, as a, a thing that has happened in our culture is that we are so death phobic um, that a lot of times doctors aren't having conversations with people about death. Um, even when they are dying, or, you know, like um, thinking about treatment for different diseases, like usually it's treatment, 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 treatment. And many times, and, you know, this isn't true for everyone, there are incredible doctors out there, but the conversation around stopping treatment is not, um, not always first up, or conversation even around not having treatment is not, you know, first first thing there um and within families too you know like we're like no you have you have to do this you have to do this without stopping to be like what what do you want and that's like the hardest conversation ever right um but it ultimately it needs to be up to that that person and so when we can have these conversations before anything happens right around like what is what is quality of life what are your values? Like, what, how do you want to live? What, what is your joy? Um, can be really helpful if we have those while we are healthy. Um, so then we can come back to them when something happens and say, has this changed? You know, like, what do, what do we want to do here? What do you want to do here? But you've already thought about it. Um, and you've already started to have some of those really super hard conversations each other. I just started mm, like being really loud with that, which was like me feeling your sacral, your gut energy. Yeah. And so if you had other thoughts, I'm sorry, I have a, a I want to play with that part that you just said real quick. Um, yeah, about having a plan and going back to it like that just made me think mm -hmm. of the tools of improvising because it's like almost all of them apply like you can yes and that yes you have a plan and also what's relevant right now if that's mm -hmm. true that you have a plan like what else has changed since then and then yeah. maybe a to seeing right so being like oh you one of your values is sustainability in the environment so what does that mean what are practices mm -hmm. that have evolved in that time that in terms of like what could happen with your body you know can have mm -hmm. those conversations or iding the relationships that are at play oh you made this plan with certain relatives in mind and they have since passed or your mm -hmm. proximity to peers has changed how does that affect mm -hmm. it and then mm -hmm. building versus inventing of really looking at oh we have a building block of a plan right we've at least had this conversation and now mm -hmm. at what point can I say I don't have to to now suddenly like imagine where I am in life when this will be happening it is that moment how does yeah. that feel and then this whole process of talking about death at all is a way that you're having your own back right and then mm -hmm. having community and and support and from someone like yourself that's a death worker is a way that like we can have each other's back so i just had to share that out because my mind is seeing all of the ways that um having a death plan is something that is it feels i'll say the word revolutionary simply because mm -hmm. it's something that feels unfamiliar because it's something that's not broadly talked about, right? Like mm -hmm. we're told to spend $50,000 on a wedding and think about that every day of our life until it happens, especially for those raised as um, gender, uh, gendered female and raised that way. But it's like, what about your death plan? Can that be something playful? So I, mm -hmm. I yeah, I just was like, oh, I want to go to that part. Um, and also just sharing that, I don't know if this was when you were making your own death plan, but I remember you specifically asking if something were to happen, would we do our best to take care of Buffy, which is her wonderful mm -hmm. puppy. And even that, like those small 
action mm-hmm. steps or gestures you're asking about way before you need to. So I just want to recognize yeah. your ability to not just think about this and care for others, but I see you taking these steps for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I just want to celebrate that because sometimes, you know, we can talk about something, but we're not implementing it or practicing it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Buffy, plan for your pets. <laughs> and you said something earlier that made me think about Buffy too. For context, Buffy is 14. She's a big dog. She's had cancer for several years. And so I've been uh, death working with Buffy for the last several years, which feels super tender. I'm on the verge of some tears. Um, But yeah, it's like we get, we have practice in this. Maybe that's where I'm going with this. We have practice in this. If you've had any kind of pet, you know, like that conversation, which is different with an animal than a human to be very clear, but that conversation around like, when is a time to support Buffy in dying, you know, like, and we thought we were there. And then I was like, <laughs> like Buffy, is this your time? Like, you got to tell us. I like Mercury is like, I was like, if, if this is your time, that's okay. We'll make that call. And if it's not like, let me know. And this was after Buffy, like not getting off the couch for two and a half days. And Jason and I were like, we think it's time to make that call. And I had that talk with Buffy and literally 15 minutes later, she got off the couch and ate food, which she hadn't done in days. And like earlier that morning, I tried to get her up to take her outside and she couldn't stand. And she was just walking around and she was like, I'm fine. (laughs) It's like, and I remember you sharing that out and you had, and you'd given me the heads up that, you know, I might need to make arrangements, be able to come over soon. Yeah. And when you shared that it reminded me. So I'm realizing now that even a central message to my own work or the process of it um, is what I'm calling the control to connection pivot, right? What happens? How does life become more livable if we're able to realize moments where there's control and then is there the option or access to connection? And then that that place, I'm sure, and not again, not to shape, but just to normalize how normal it is, that oftentimes that energy of control comes in of like, this is my responsibility. I have to do this, but you know, mm-hmm. and so in that moment, you were offered a sense of connection of, hey, can you just give me a clear sign or we're noticing we're, you know, we're following your lead and we're noticing these things. Is this actually where you are? And just mm-hmm. the beauty of her being like, oh, actually, <laughs> nope. let me find some snackies. Did you leave anything here? What crumb? You know, and I'm speaking from knowing Buffy's, or Buff, Buff, Buff's like beautiful personality. I'm sure she was grazing for snacks. Like, mm, can I get in? Is there something on the table that you left for me? Um, and so, yeah, in that moment, had your, your mindset been on control of, well, I've already been at this place of upset for two days I'm just going to call it now so I don't have to think of it a third day you know yeah. like that the opportunity may not have been given to her and so yeah. I just I feel like that's a, a beautiful example of the relationality of it like you were really yeah. in relationship with her yeah and also I'm that's reminding me too of like this is especially for caregivers like in this scenario with Buffy, I like had some moments of being pissed at her. (laughs) I just cried for two days and I was, I was mad. Oh, I was like, you little, can I swear? I was like, you, it's me. You can say, I was like, you little asshole. You know, I was like, I was pissed at the dog. And, you know, of course there's like love and so many feelings in there, but that's also super normal. And another thing that we don't talk about, like when someone go there, Carrie, go there. Yeah. (laughs) When someone is dying or even just sick, you know, like even just needs help, needs support, needs extra care or love. You can feel however you need to feel. You don't, maybe don't act out of those feelings. Right. But acknowledge that they're there because they're real and valid. You get to experience whatever feelings you need to feel because this shit is hard. It is hard, hard, hard. Um, And I think a lot of us get into trouble when we try to like silver lining everything or pretend that we're fine or like not acknowledge some of those really like, I don't know, like some of those really hard feelings like relief if someone dies, you know, or the things that make us feel guilty or shameful, like it's okay to acknowledge those things and be real 
about those things because they're real and you're not the only one experiencing that. Or if you're pissed at whoever you're taking care of, like, that's okay. It's okay to feel that it's not, not as okay to act from that place. But if we're not acknowledging it, how do you not act from that place? You know? Well, and that definitely, and that has me curious too, about how earlier we were saying, um, talking about whiteness and white supremacy's role in our cultural aversion to death. And I'm also wondering, because you're speaking to like nuance and complexity and, you know, like whiteness doesn't want to acknowledge complexity. So I just feel that parallel also that, you know, being in a caregiver role, there is that complexity and then complexity, you know, we really are um, socialized for that to mean discomfort and like discomfort is often where we check out. So I'm curious on whether you have any just insights you want to share about how embodiment and my definition of embodiment for this question is just like a relationship of being in and with your body and sensing your body and practice having practices with your physical body, how Mm -hmm. that can support caregivers or support death planning, death work, anything like Mm -hmm. that. I'm especially knowing like you're multi-passionate and multi-talented, but just how that can be a space of sitting with complexity, exploring complexity or anything of like that. Yeah, I guess that's the end word, that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yes. And what I want to say before that is that for the person who's being cared for, um, it's also okay to be pissed at your caregiver. You know, like I was actually going to ask that, but then my friend, I'm glad you brought that up. So I was like, I bet. And also I'm sure yeah. too, you have the right to change caregivers. If it comes to the point where there's negligence or abuse, like, especially if you're in a, a more of a hospice system and it's, and yeah. you're, you're dealing with people who aren't death workers in the sense of, of looking mm-hmm. at it as that type of, of practice. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's access issues there. Um, and there's people that can advocate for you and support you to navigate that system. Um, I'm, I'm thinking like, especially about family, family caregiving and how complicated that is, right? Like, especially if it's for a parent, um, because now the roles have switched and there's just so much, so much there. And I don't know, just whatever anyone is feeling about that is okay. And if you can have communication about that, even better, you know, like if, if you can name some of the like really complicated things that are happening, then even better. And um, on that too, as a caregiver, I think about like, I'm not perfect at practicing this <laughs> at all. Um, but I think about like, how can I like, how can I support that person's autonomy? Um, which, so I've, I've been a caregiver for my, for my husband, for my mother, for my grandfather and my own family, in addition to doing this professionally, um, with a lot of the roles that I've had, but like, especially in family relationships. And I would say, especially like with Jason, it was easier because our relationship is different, but like with my mom and my grandpa, it's like, how can I offer autonomy and not take that away? Cause that's something we do too. We like over, we over care give. Um, so yes, I'm just wanting to name, name that because that doesn't feel good. I'm, that means I'm overstretched. And that means that the person being cared for is probably mad at me <laughs> or, you know, feeling disempowered or feeling like um, it's so hard when you can't do things for yourself. And so finding ways to support that person and still having as much autonomy as they can. Um, and thinking about the embodiment piece that you asked, it's like, I don't, you know, I don't know how other people experience their bodies, but my body is so clear, like looping it all the way back around to the gut. Like my body is so clear. I smell bad like my gut hurts. (laughs) So when I'm noticing those things or like, you know, I like feel the, I feel the energy rise or I feel the tension in my shoulders. Like my body is so loud. Um, I used to ignore that or try to ignore that. And it led to a lot of health issues. Um, 
And are your you pup, crazy? your pup, nieces and nephews are just randomly fighting over nothing. So, oh, nice. so nice. they were also sharing their thoughts. I they were feeling embodied. They're like, is that Poppy <laughs> K? Oh, now we're going to make They're like, why is that Poppy yep, they, they were demonstrating what you were saying, though, as far as tension is rising, energy is shifting. They were yeah. giving visual aids. <laughs> Thank you well, for checking in. <laughs> little open centers over there. <laughs> um, yes, so we can, you know, uh, it's been a huge practice for me in my lifetime to like actually acknowledge that what the things that are happening in my body are things happening in my body. You know, I, my background is in social work and as a social worker, we like talked about stress in school and then you go out and you're a social worker and you're like, I'm fine. We talked about stress in school and um, I I'm losing fine. all my hair and you know, my toenails <laughs> are purple, but <laughs> literally, literally I lost my hair. My hair was falling out at rapid rates. Like, that's just like the tip of the iceberg. I was not fine, but I also was not like, hey, I'm stressed out. And even, you know, I had some care practices in place, but I wasn't being honest. And I was working in systems. Um, yes. And, you know, just not, I was not being, some of the things I didn't have the words for yet or the analysis for yet. And other things I was just like, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> it's normal to cry every day when I come home from work. <laughs> and it, you know, maybe it's normal for but... people to move a seat away from you on the subway, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even by New York standards. So. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I've been there. Um, but I think like, learning how to listen to my body and be like, okay, I hear you. You're being so loud. Can I address this right now? No. Okay. If I can't address it right now. I'm like, thank you for letting me know. You know, like sometimes I hide in the bathroom and I like rub my tummy and I'm like, thank you for letting me know something's going on. I cannot, like, I have to do this thing right now. We're going to come back, you know, and other times like I, sh I shake energy out, like maybe 30 times a day because I'm like oh it's stuck <sighs> gotta move it nice big exhale shaking it out um I would say that's like one of the ways quick like right like it doesn't have to be an hour-long practice if you have space for that amazing but sometimes you're like I have 45 seconds what can I do <laughs> and those are things you know like I also think about like I have a need I need to feel cozy and so I'm constantly like, how can I bring that? How can I walk around and feel that? How can I bring that into? How can you cozify your moment almost? Right? How can I cozify my moment? All the, see, I have this mug here, even though it's cold, I, I feel comforted to hold this mug, you know, but that's my, my core desired feeling. So whatever yours is, it's like, how can you how can you acknowledge what's going on in here? Every body is different. Every need is different. So how can you acknowledge what's there? And when you're able to tend to it, how can you tend to it? Oh, I want to take a jumping off point on that. Um, and acknowledging time, this will probably be the last like segue. But if that core desired feeling, that feels like mm -hmm. such a cozy Oh, um, you said that <laughs> approachable way to explore um, maybe even because you mentioned values earlier and thinking about your values with your death plan. Sometimes people want to be like, I don't know what my values are, but a core desired feeling mm -hmm. could be something that feels really expansive because that could be, how do you want to feel in your relationship? How do you want to feel today? Mm -hmm. How do you want to feel in your body? How do you want to feel with your death plan like that? Mm -hmm. so if you I have the privilege to know that you're on your deathbed, how do you want that to feel? What do you want it to smell like? What sounds do you want to hear? Who do you want around you? Like, yeah. those are all questions we can explore around that. And I'm curious too, um, if those of us with the privilege, even of time in our day to have a 30 second thought of what's my core desired feeling, you know, cause that even that thought space isn't accessible for everyone having that moment. I wonder how that impacts our capacity and ability to care, give for ourselves, for others of just being in right of relationship with people. Right. Cause if we're having those many resets throughout the day, like, I'm just curious on how that, and for looking at, 
um, challenging systems, but no, we can't change them, you know, overnight, but if we're changing our way we're interacting with them or the impact they have on us, that mm-hmm. core desired feeling feels like a really fun place to, to play with. Hmm, thank mm-hmm. you for sharing it in that way. Like I knew you were a, a cozy connoisseur, but like <laughs> language, added language of it being a core desired feeling, um, feels very tangible. Yeah. And that's, uh, just to name core desired feeling is not, I did not come up with that. Um, what is, oh, I'm forgetting their name. Danielle, someone, this language back from my health coaching oh, days. Okay. Well, thank is, you for sharing it. Yeah. I, it was um, new to me, or I just don't remember. Let's just be honest. I often don't yeah. remember things I already know uh, or aware of. So, <laughs> but that, for further inquiry, I will look that up and I will look for some sources and link that in show notes too. Yeah. And they have since the person who came out with that, there's been some stuff there. Some challenges. <laughs> but, yes. Yeah. Well, I, I think did, this is a practice. Danielle right? someone is where okay, our yoga, is. our yoga practice, right. Of, <laughs> of keep the, the full person in in your scope but also wait miss Bush says be a critical lover there you go so it's like Mm -hmm. you as a human valid for existing and also let's be accountable with our decisions and our impact (laughs) so we can we can hold all that at once oh well i see there's three minutes left so i want to give you the chance to share anything that you would like to share that you didn't and also how can people support you and find your Mm -hmm. work any of those types of things. And the last thing I'd like for you to share is what message does your gut want to leave everyone with? Mm, Maybe the last thing I wanted to share was the message my gut wanted to leave everyone with. But let me pause for a moment. Um, I was thinking about how nature is a great teacher and that we can learn so much by observing and being in nature, especially around dying and living. Because nature, especially if you are somewhere that has all the seasons, um, nature really shows us that. Um, So if people are like, I don't want to talk about death, but I want to maybe start with this. Um, grow a plant in a pot. <laughs> you know, if you can grow a garden, grow a garden. If you can't grow a garden, grow a plant in a pot. Or just uh, take, you know, 30 seconds to notice what's happening around you. My, um, one of my death doula teachers, Alu Arthur, gave us this exercise that was like, go on a walk and notice all the things that are dying. Uh, so yes, nature has been doing this since nature existed, which is a long time. So it's a, a great practice and a great teacher to be able to sit with. So I think that's, that's the thing I'm wanting to leave people with. It's like, if you're wondering where to start, start with what's around you. You know, even if you're in the middle of New York city, there's still, there's still nature there to, to observe. Um, people can find me, um, my business is called Moonset and Co. Uh, like the moon rises and the moon sets, Moonset and Co. And I have a website, moonsetandco.com. You can find me on Instagram. Um, I do one-on-one offerings. I have group classes. I have a, I don't know when this is, do you know when this is coming out, Ori? Um, in around I'd say a couple weeks so okay. after Aquarius season I forget what's next okay yeah so in a couple weeks okay so a couple offerings that I have up now won't be available but other ones will so check out and go to my website or my Instagram is where I'm most active I do have a Facebook page but I'm not on there regularly <laughs> so you can follow it that would be amazing um but Instagram is is where I interact and I think I think that's all so was your message about nature your guts message I just want to was um good question no my guts message is you can start like it's okay 
it's okay to start and support's there for you to start. That feels very powerful and succinct. Like it was like the gut was like, I have spoken. (laughs) (laughs) Like that wasn't my message. (laughs) Carrie's actually a conduit. Yeah, for her gut. I was like, well, we need a a, a human flesh bag. You're more than that. But you know, your gut was like, thank you for asking and double checking because I'm just, I'm going to celebrate and acknowledge myself for remembering to, wow, I did (laughs) remember something for more than 30 seconds. Well, Carrie, it is always a true joy and delight. And I just want to thank you. And again, if um, anyone wants to reach out, I will have the information she shared linked in the little show note caption. So that way, you know, if you're not an auditory rememberer, you can see that in text. Um, so thank you so much. And uh, I like to end things, Carrie, with saying, have a razzle-dazzle day. But if that's not accessible, you can put an F on front and have a frazzle-dazzle day. <laughs> I thought you were going to say have a fucking razzle-dazzle day. Oh, well, that too. Yeah, the F can be fucking razzle-dazzle day. It can be a frazzle. Like, it's sort of like, what is It's like fucking great or like, what the fuck is this? Like, there's a lot yeah. of options. Um, mm-hmm. You can self-define your F. <laughs> Oh, and that is how exploring death can make life more livable. Thanks, Lori. That was Carrie's magical essence. So you heard some about guts and how really our guts can be this like really driving and illuminating aspect of our experience. We explored dream work and our spiritual connection and so many other things. And I just want to leave you today with this sort of opening and curiosity of how can you start to get curious about what your body's conveying to you? How can you identify some topics, whether that's death or something else, that you haven't really been encouraged to think about or to connect about? And how can you also then start to curate some spaces to have conversations that could make life more livable? I'm going to link Carrie's pages and resources in the show notes. And I really encourage you to reach out and, you know, ask those questions you're not sure about. Because one thing that Carrie is absolutely fabulous with is holding space and really like reflecting back to you what it feels like you're you know, you're sitting with and that you're sifting through. So once again, thank you so very much for tuning in. As always, have a razzle-dazzle day. And if that's not accessible, put an F on front and have a frazzle-dazzle day.